Welcome to Open Secrets Radio. This episode is a special one. We are playing the audio recording of our first Twitter space, hosted on the 6th of January, 2022. In the space, you will hear the Open Secrets team, as well as members of the public, breaking down part one of the State Capture Commission report. To join our next space, follow us on Twitter at OpenSecretsZA. Or to learn more about Open Secrets and sign up for our newsletter, visit OpenSecrets.org.za. That's OpenSecrets.org.za. Enjoy this recording. Hi, greeting folks. Thanks, Mamelo, very much. My name is Henny von Furen. Um, really good to have everybody with us in Open Secrets' first Twitter space this evening. Um, and really glad that everybody's found the time to join us. We're hoping in the next hour, an hour and 15 minutes or so, uh, to be able to engage with everyone in the Twitter space about uh, our views that we've developed on, on the first uh, part of the Zondo Commission's report. I think For those, I'm not sure where everybody's been this week, but um, if you haven't been still bickering with your family or sitting at a beach somewhere, I think you know that it's been one hell of a week in South Africa. The country has literally been on fire. We've seen what's happened in Parliament um, with the burning of Parliament early this week. Uh, We've had people caught with hand grenades in the Bramfisher Airport in Mangaung. Uh, And of course, this all happened six months after Uh, the insurrection and the violence that followed that um, and who we still don't know instigated that in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. And and fundamentally, of course, this has helped shape our politics. Um, And it's also helped identify, I think, the real real pervasiveness and the continuities in these kind of deep, uh, these uh, shadow state type networks that continue to to move around in South Africa and, and impact on our politics and potentially threaten democracy in many ways. And so perhaps it was a highlight on Tuesday when we finally got to see the first part of the Zondo Commission's report. Um, I think many of us have been eagerly awaiting it, certainly as Open Secrets. We've been following the work of the Zondo Commission, working with comrades and partners within civil society for the last few years in ensuring that the Zonda Commission does its work in making submissions to the Zonda Commission. And Open Secrets, of course, has made submissions in in the form of a a particular submission on the role of the enablers and that is focusing on the roles of the bank, the banks, the the auditors, consulting companies, um, and how they've enabled state capture. And of course, I think that's going to be a focus of a lot of our, our conversation. But we recognize it's not only the role of the enablers. Very clearly, they've worked with politicians uh, and they've worked with uh, with middlemen who have enabled state uh, state capture. And uh, and I think that's the the, um, the the bigger network that we we want to try and address in this evening's uh, conversation. So kicking off our conversation this evening, we've asked a couple of colleagues from Open Secrets who themselves are all working as investigators and have looked at at different um, aspects of of state capture and have been investigating this for ongoing Open Secrets work to try and unpack parts of the report. Um, I think if... um, uh, anyone who has had a chance to open that 850-odd page document, you recognize not only is there um, some heavy reading there, but there's also a tremendous amount of uh, clarity in, in the sense that uh, a number of organizations of people and corporations are both implicated or named, and there's a very clear call from 
Deputy Chief Justice Zondo and uh, uh, and his team for there to be consequence, for there to be prosecutions, and for us to see um, that the president, where the executive needs to support those, needs to get behind this. And of course, um, he, in his first part of the report, puts forward certain reforms as, uh, as well. Um, but this, this first part of the report focuses specifically on um, three uh, entities that have been the, the focus of state capture. That's SAA, uh, the South African Revenue Service, and uh, and the um, uh, the new age group, and specifically looking at some of the the funding that was provided to the new age, it also in, focuses on the role of of public procurement and makes some really important recommendations around the reform that could take place. So we've we've asked our colleagues um, to try and unpack that, and instead of starting with the cases. Uh, the particular cases of SAA, like the report does, we've actually fronted it with what we thought that, frankly, if the commission was thinking about how to better write a report, they would have started with some of their key recommendations up front on how to better protect uh, whistleblowers to to um, to tackle the issue of public procurement corruption. And so we're going to ask our colleague, Grisa Patha, who's on who's on in the Twitter space, um, who's an investigator at Open Secrets and has also worked as a journalist, an investigative journalist working on state capture over a number of years to kick us off for the discussion around public procurement. Um, then our colleague, Michael Marchant, who's the head of investigations at Open Secrets, will turn to SAA and not only look at South African airways, but also look at the enablers. And there we see the role of the auditors come out clearly uh, in in terms of um, their responsibility, amongst others, uh, uh, PwC. Uh, our colleague Zen Mate, uh, who is working as an investigator at Open Secrets, will then look at the the role at, at the issue of uh, the South African Revenue Service SARS, and particularly the role of corporate giant Bain. I don't know if anyone has seen some of the news reports that have just come out. Apparently. Bain is deeply disappointed uh, by the findings of Deputy Chief Justice Zondo. And I think that's rich coming from a company that's so very clearly been implicated in very serious crimes. So we'll dig deeper, look at the role of, uh, of SARS and Bain. And then Khadija Sharif will tackle the issue of whistleblowers. Khadija has been working as an investigative journalist for many years, working closely with whistleblowers um, as uh, as the representative for the platform f uh, for the protection or advancement of whistleblowers in Africa, and we're delighted that uh, Khadija has joined Open Secrets as an associate senior investigator on the first of January, twenty twenty two. So, our colleagues are going to talk to the three areas we focused on. Those are the what we call the hits, what has the commission got right, more or less in our view, where do we think it's it's done a good job, the misses, where's it kind of got it wrong, um, uh, and, you know, that's always possible. I guess there are going to be different views on that. Uh, where might it have missed a crucial piece of information, or should it better have looked at some of the big structural issues? Uh, and then what are the opportunities from all of this? What can we take in order to ensure change? And I think there are loads of opportunities in here. Um, this is not only a document for the politicians, this is a document for the South African people. And I think that's certainly how we see this at, at Open Secrets. Um, but but maybe before we, we dive in and turn to you, Raisa, um, and after our colleagues have given inputs, let me just add, we're then going to open it up uh, to inputs um, from the floor. And we really want to encourage folks who have their own views on what they've heard 
or have read in the report to share those. We're going to give five or six uh, people an opportunity in two rounds of inputs um, and, and ask for those to be short. Um, and and uh, really to stress that we don't believe what our assessments are exhaustive. We are entering the space because we think it's a discussion that has to be had, uh, a discussion that needs to be had amongst South Africans. Um, and there need to be many more of these um, over the months ahead. So I guess we all want to we all want to um, understand exactly uh, what the role of uh, the corporations and and uh, various politicians are who are implicated in in state capture. Um, but I think maybe a, a, a point that we need to start is something that is missing from from the report, and that is um, the something that we we've been reflecting on is is um, I think that the drafters instead of potentially focusing on this right at the end should have reminded South Africans right from the get go of what the impact of state capture is. We speak about a billion rand that was spent on the Zondo uh, Commission report. There were obviously thousands uh, um, of or rather millions of pages of, of documents, approximately 8 million page, uh, or pieces of information, if, if I'm corrected, were collected. Um, hundreds of witnesses who appeared uh, before the Zondo Commission. But what's left out of the story is the impact that uh, state captures had on the lives of South Africans. Um, by some calculations, up to 2 million South Africans have lost what are called work opportunities because of the shrinking of the economy during um, the approximately 10 years of, of state capture. Um, and uh, that has, of course, been can be read in many ways in which people have directly been impacted by not having proper access to health care, proper access to education, uh, to to roads, to um, to uh, all range of, of public services, and of course the undermining of democracy, and it's a process that's been with us for a long time. We know particularly the corruptions of the arms deals of the later apartheid period and the general corruption of that period, the corruption of the arms deal of the uh, early, late 1990s and 2000s, all bled into this later stage of state capture. And ultimately, the, the point being made here is that we need to tackle this, not because it's about focusing on a bunch of political elites or we need to focus on another meme, uh, you know, with, an, with a corrupt auditor who speaks about fat cakes, but ultimately because this is in the interest of South Africa's people and it's about tackling the power networks um, who who steal um, from steal opportunities from people. But you know that's a bit that's a bit bit of a long introduction. Mamelo, when we were chatting before the beginning of the space, um, you said you wanted to weigh in about this because I know this is something that concerns you. So can I draw you back in before we we turn to Teresa? Yeah, I think it's it's particularly troubling because this report is kind of framed um, by Zondo and um, the president when they released it as something that is for the public. And that that's the reason why they've emphasized releasing it immediately, which is really important and a really important step regarding transparency that we haven't seen in other reports. Um, but it does feel something that like like it was something that this that the people did not get to be a part of, um, particularly in the fact that the human costs of state capture was not put in the preface of this report. That was not what began the report. It was kind of focusing on the individuals who gave evidence, who um, incidentally, the people that weren't acknowledged as people who have given evidence are South African ordinary citizens. I think Zondo acknowledged academics, whistleblowers, everybody else. 
But what we missed is that the Zondo Commission had initially intended um, to do a roadshow, um, which would um, have uh, the which would have the Zondo Commission really travel around the country and try to get inputs from people on how state captures really impacted them. And the Zondo Commission did not end up doing that. And what we have is kind of a silence around what the impact of state capture is. I think a lot of us know what that is. We see the blackouts with ESCOM and we struggle to get on the trains with Prasa and all of that. But what about the people who were supposed to benefit from the project at Estina? Um, the school children whose textbooks just never arrived. I think those stories are really important to tell, um, especially because the civil society working group on state capture in particular made such a, a huge emphasis um, to the commission itself and to the public that it's important that it's the public's opinions that are represented um, in the findings as well and how this has really um, been detrimental to them and how it's deepened inequality in the country. And that's why we had the people's hearing in 2019. And we wanted to get those voices, the stories of a woman trying to get onto a train um, going from Musenberg to Cape Town and how much that, how much she struggled with that, um, how people who were supposed to be working at the Optimum Coal Mine really struggled with the effects of state capture there. And I think if um, Zondo is going to say that this is about the people, um, it's really that that we needed to see start the report. That should have been the preface. Um, and it's really, uh, it, it's kind of disappointing that that wasn't um, how the scene was set for what happens when you have the state's um, capacity eroded like this? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mamelo. Um, I mean, fundamentally, I think what you point towards is this is a this is a human rights issue, and and we must frame it that way. If anyone hasn't seen some of the material that the Civil Society Working Group on State Capture produced, um, I think our colleague Alwande will be tweeting some of that out. But uh, it's uh, all available on the Open Secrets website to download as well, and I think you can get first-hand accounts, which no doubt many people in, on, in the space themselves know about, have uh, seen the impact in their own lives and own families. But I think it's uh, important to look at examples, as you say, like the textbook cases in Limpopo or what it actually means when the trains don't arrive to, peop to working class people um, who are just trying to eke out a living and, and, uh, and live day by day. But you know, let's turn now to, to the issue of, of public procurement. And I guess um, it's a relatively dry, boring topic, but Zondo makes the point in his um, report, uh, Raisa, in, he talks about a, uh, the fact that we spent, I think by 2017 calculation, we spent about a trillion rand every year, uh, the South African government on our behalf on buying things. So that's the process of public pr procurement um, of of, uh, ten of tenders that are put out. And those are, we rely then primarily on on private companies to supply the states with goods, goods and services. And of course, that's been the the real, um, I guess, is the real point of contention here, because this is where 
this has enabled the state capture. If we look at the role of the middlemen and the, the role of various private companies, what Bain and others were doing is setting up systems to enable them and others to, to effectively plunder the state. And I think that's important to remember. Raisa, um, what are your impressions of the, of the, you know, the focus on, on public procurement? There's a whole host of recommendations that focus on, um, on uh, the role of national treasury. There's the talk about a new anti-corruption authority that's going to be set up. Where do you see the hits, the misses and the opportunities uh, in this mix? Uh, thanks so much, Henny. And yeah, uh, like you said earlier, I think that this should have been the introduction of the report. Because even though, as you say, procurement is dry and, you know, words like tender and bidding, these are very sort of um, technical terms that I don't think many people always understand what exactly they mean. But this chapter is certainly, I think, one of the most important chapters and its recommendations are probably the most important to come out of the first part of the Zondo Commission's report. So broadly, um, the procurement chapter deals with how public procurement processes in South Africa have been abused. And it kind of points that this is a historical issue and that procurement processes have been vulnerable for quite some time. I'm just going to detail maybe like one or two or three examples of systemic public procurement corruption that has happened that the Zondo Commission has found. The first is that we see that SOEs are acquiring services and paying for services that they don't actually need which basically means that taxpayers' money are going towards things that are not needed by the state. Um, this was very obvious, for example, when Bain was contracted to do consulting services for SARS. SARS actually didn't need Bain because they were doing terrifically on their own. They were internationally recognized for the work that they were doing as a revenue service before, of course, Tom Moyani became commissioner. So that is one example of fruitful, fruitless and wasteful expenditure and also irregular contracting. The second is that in order for companies to be able to do government contract work, they need to win bids to do this work. Um, and there are certain bid criteria that sort of dictates what companies can do the work that is required. What we see in the public procurement process or the abuse of this process is that actually, in some cases, the bid criteria was manipulated to favor certain bids. Um, and I mean, Open Secrets, we've done investigations into press so we've, where we've seen clearly how this has happened. The report places a lot of emphasis on SARS and Transnet as well to show that this is a common thing that has happened in the country. A third thing that has happened, which is carried out throughout the report, is the fact that competent, competent officials were removed from their positions to make way for Gupta soldiers and for Zuma soldiers that enabled corruption in the country. We've seen this, for example, at SAA, where Dudu Miami basically dismantled a competent board and installed people who were completely not able to do the jobs that was required of them and basically just said yes to her. And also Colin Machila's appointment as ESCOM chair was completely irregular. Um, the same for Siabonga Gama at Transnet. These were basically facilitators who allowed the corruption of procurement, uh, procurement processes to happen. So these were just some of the systemic ways in which the procurement process in the country was captured to allow for irregular contracts to take place and to allow for state funding to be spent completely wastefully um, and to be taken away from basic services which are required, as you and Mamelo pointed out, Henny, so, ne so necessarily in the country. Um, and then in terms of the recommendations, that's just basically a broad outline of some of the findings. The findings. And in terms of the recommendations, the recommendations are probably the most important aspect um, because a lot of what is seen in the findings is already known. It's been revealed by 
incredible investigative journalists who have been doing this work for quite some time. But the recommendations point to, as you say, Henny, the fact that we need an anti-corruption agency in the country. Um, this is a significant hit, I would say, and also an opportunity, um, because it means that we finally may have a an anti-corruption agency that has powers to monitor procurement processes to ensure that contracts are awarded to companies that are actually able to do that work and that are actually needed for that work. Um, and it also means that there will be a way for companies who are not, uh, who abuse this process to be finally held to account, or at least we hope so. At the moment, what, a, what, a, what could potentially be a miss is that the anti-corruption agency seems to be geared towards the public sector. There seems to be a burden on the public sector to, to report offenses or to be found um, to be investigated for offenses. And there isn't so much emphasis on the, on the role of the private sector in all of this. Um, and particularly in our work as Open Secrets, you know, we've applied pressure for private sector actors to be acknowledged in the State Capture Commission and its work. And while they have been acknowledged, they haven't always been acknowledged in the recommendations. You know, they've been damning findings, but this hasn't always carried through to the recommendations of the reports. Another sort of aspect that the recommendations suggest is that they be deferred prosecution agreements. Um, at the moment, uh, the report doesn't sort of expand entirely on how DPAs will work, but basically deferred prosecutions agreements allow corporates to come to a sort of secretive agreement with prosecutors that often enables them to pay back a sum of money or a fine in some cases. DPAs haven't always worked well, particularly in the UK and the US, because they are secretive and because often paying back money isn't really considered punitive for these companies. They can afford to pay back money. Um, so it doesn't really make them feel the punishment for what they've done. And they also don't always need to admit that they've done wrongdoing. In DP for DPAs in South Africa, uh, Zondo has said that um, these agreements are preferred because they will help the NPA uh, to sort of attain some level of justice. But given the record of DPAs around the world, uh, I'm uncertain, and I think we as Open Secrets are uncertain, that they will be a reliable mechanism of justice for the country. We made recommendations to the Zondo Commission that DPAs should be a public and transparent process. Um, and this doesn't seem to have been taken into account, so it very much looks like it will still be a secretive process. The Commission has said, however, that there will be a tribunal that has oversight of DPAs, but also it depends on, you know, who is appointed to these tribunals and how will they work. So there still remains quite a few questions on that, on that point. And then also on the issue of social cost, I mean, I think that this was quite a miss and it's something that you and Mamelo have outlined quite well, Henny. But when you're talking about public procurement in South Africa, um, there needs to be a discussion on, on the public cost and the way that this has impacted people in the country, particularly the most vulnerable. And for some reason, this is completely missing from this section of the report. Um, also to add that this section of the report was sort of linked to SARS. So it's SARS and public procurement in South Africa as it's written in the report. Um, and that doesn't sort of capture the essence of what the significance of public procurement is and how it is so valuable in ensuring that the state runs smoothly and that there is profits being made by SOEs and that there is proper systems in place so that the state can do its job to focus on helping its people. Um, and this is sorely missing from the report. What is missing from the report in this section is the fact that if you bypass public procurement so systemically the way that the report outlines that the Guptas and their associates have done, 
you are in fact undermining democracy and you are in fact undermining the rights of the poor. And in this way, by not grounding the recommendations um, in this sense, I don't know if the report fully takes into account the cost of state capture. Um, so those are just some of my thoughts. Um, the public procurement section is quite long. There are other recommendations too, but those are just a few, um, just a few words on, on the very dense section that it is. Great, thanks, Raisa. I mean, keeping in mind that everybody who gives an input here is like yourself, you're covering uh, possibly a few hundred pages. So so there's only so much we can say. And we really want to ask folks who, who are going to who put up requests to speak in a, in a while, perhaps address things that we're missing, because there's no doubt things that, you know, you'd like to point out to ask questions about. But um, Raisa, one of the points you make, of course, is the role of journalists in exposing uh, state capture. And I think it's a point we need to continue reiterating that if it wasn't for investigative journalists, if it wasn't for whistleblowers, if it wasn't for the people who did all the legwork, we wouldn't know what we know about state uh, capture and um, the exact extent of those networks. We know that the Zonda Commission, while it had access to lots of those big Gupta League servers and, and other leaks of information uh, or sources of information, they ultimately had to draw on, on the legwork of, of journalists. Um, uh, but of course, the state capture period was also pretty grim if we look at the way in which um, the, the, the work of journalists can be subverted to turn them into part of a system that's basically a, a propaganda sheet or a propaganda rag. And that certainly seems to have been the role of the new age. What, 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 what for you were the, some of the, the hits and misses and opportunities in the section dealing with, with the new age uh, group and, and newspaper? Um, so for me, I think it was a great hit that um, the New Age featured so prominently. Um, initially, when I saw that the reports had given 200 pages to the New Age, I thought it was quite a surprise. But given that the New Age had contracts with so many various SOEs um, in South Africa, you know, illicit and irregular contracts, um, it is an important focus. Um, so basically, the New Age was a Gupta-run newspaper um, that was established in 2010. And the Zondo Commission investigates contracts that the New Age held with Transnet, SAA, and ESCOM between 2011 and 2017. Now, basically, the New Age held these contracts um, supposedly because it was doing advertising and sponsorship with these SOEs. But it turns out, as the Zondo Commission finds, that all these contracts were basically irregular and totally wasteful expenditure on the part of the SOEs. And in fact, what Zondo finds is that the money that the New Age gained from these contracts with SOEs was actually siphoned off, um, which basically means that there was in an incredible amount of stealth involved in this and that none of these business deals can be considered legitimate. Um, now, we haven't really discussed the New Age for quite some time now, um, but if everybody can just think back to a few years ago, where the New Age was making news for its infamous breakfast shows where nobody really knew exactly what was happening. Um, there was a time when it featured quite prominently in the news. Um, and it's quite remarkable how through this one sort of um, supposed newspaper, the Guptas were able to spread their network so far and wide into government agencies. Now, the recommendations don't actually really follow what Zondo has found in his um, report. Instead, the recommend while, while Zondo kind of focuses on these major SOEs and the, the big contracts that they had with the New Age, the recommendations basically focus on three individuals. They recommend that Tony Gupta be investigated for potential corruption. He was um, at some point the acting head of the New Age. It also recommends that Colin Machila, 
who was the former ESCOM CEO, also be investigated for fraud and for violating the Public Finance Management Act, which basically tells authorities how they're allowed to um, conduct themselves in procurement processes and contract work. And then also it recommends that Brian Molefe, who was the then Transnet Group CEO, also be charged with um, fraud and violating the PFMA. Now, the problem with this is that while it is great to see that, you know, these key figures be recommended to be investigated and to be charged, um, what the TNA section misses is a more systemic analysis, such as the one that was done in the procurement section, that shows how TNA's sort of corruption wasn't just tied individually to its own network, that in fact, this is a widespread systemic issue that involves many actors. Um, and that didn't just involve state actors, but that also involved private actors. At the end of the day, corruption in South Africa is motivated by the desires of private actors as well as state officials. And in this section of the report, we see primarily the focus on government officials rather than private officials. Um, what is also interesting is that the report reveals that it, it kind of distinguishes between facilitators and followers. Now, facilitators are people like Colin Machila and Brian Molefe, who willingly did the bidding of the Guptas and their associates. They had followers, which were basically the people who worked for them, that ensured that these contracts came into existence. Um, and that's sort of one sort of out net, uh, sort of networked analysis that the report gives, giving a zoom out perspective. But there isn't sort of enough of that kind of work in this chapter, and it doesn't really link to the wider issues of procurement uh, corruption in the country. Um, ultimately, however, the findings are a, da a damning indictment, which is much needed, um, because finally we have a report that tells us this is how this kind of corruption was done, which is important. And it's a definitive report. You know, I don't think, um, I mean, we've seen that Bain has come out and sort of criticized the Zondo Commission's work. But many of us will know that this is definitive and that it is an investigation that has a lot of credibility, which is significant in a public space. Um, and then in terms of, I think the one thing I haven't really spoken about is the opportunities. Um, I don't think this section had too many opportunities to discuss, to be honest, um, just because it focused so minutely on particular individuals and its recommendations. But the one thing that Zondo did say in his recommendations is that there must be an investigation, that law enforcement agencies must act on what has been found in this section of the report. And ultimately, that is a chance for accountability. Um, and in fact, you know, you could argue that in all the sections of the report where Zondo like, pressurizes law enforcement to act, um, that this is in fact an opportunity for the NPA to act too and for the Hawks to act where they have failed to act. Great. Thanks very much, uh, Raisa. Um, and, and as you say, the report is, um, is definitive. And I, th and I think, you know, we are reminded again and again um, that it's also archival in its nature, the ability to be able to collect that information. Some of us have even forgotten about uh, as much as it is about accountability and, and then to be able to track how we're going to hold some of those those players to account. Um, Mike Marchin, turning to you, um, and, and you've written... Uh, uh, together with the rest of the Open Secrets team extensively on the role of SAA and particularly the role of the auditors. I think uh, uh, about 18 months ago, we published a Corporations and Economic Crime report, which focused um, on the auditors and, and, and the role of uh, some of the, or looking at some of the corrupt tenders there, uh, together with our report on, on the enablers. 
Um, what is what has stood out for you beyond the Dudumieni saga? And I guess this is the one thing to point out. There's some fixations we have, um, rightly so. This is a very troublesome individual, and who clearly needs to be uh, investigated and potentially further pro- in prosecuted. But it is a much more complex story than just Dudumieni and and the SAA, Mike. Uh, indeed, Henny. Thanks very much, and good evening to everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us. I, I think that that for me, just to start off with with a hit, is that I think it is one of the strengths of this report, this this first report of the Zondo Commission, that we get to see the range of actors who were complicit in the destruction of of South Africa's state institutions, and South African Airways is a is a really a, a perfect example of this. Um, I think that many of us on this call would have watched kind of astounded with the way that South African Airways was, was was dismantled and repurposed over a number of years. And, you know, what the report confirms is something we've known for a long time, which is that Dudu Amiani and her allies on the board, um, particularly from 2012 onwards, were able to really gut any kind of internal control and governance processes at South African Airways, um, made a series of decisions which were completely unambiguously against the interests of the airline, and essentially, uh, over time, drove it into the ground um, to the point where it, uh, you know, went underwent a very long business rescue process. But of course, there were a range of actors, particularly professionals, who were part of the story along the way. And something we focused on and that the Commission's report really gets into, I think, very well, is the role of the auditors from PwC who audited South African Airways' books Uh, from 2012 onwards. And when the Auditor General's office took over the South African Airways audit in 2017, it immediately flagged that there were a host of reportable irregularities that essentially South African Airways had been systematically violating the public procurement law in South Africa, the PFMA. It was not properly accounting for assets. Um, It was often lying about liabilities. And it was fundamentally misrepresenting its financial position to South Africans and and to the state. And so the obvious question was, PwC audited it for four or five years, along with its partner in Konki, and every single year they said that everything was fine. And so it raises this question about, you know, what they were doing. And and so the, the commission is very critical in their findings about that role. And I think very tellingly and importantly, and this is just a quote from the report, they say about PwC, had they performed their functions properly, the shambolic states of financial and risk management at SAA would have been picked up earlier and could have been addressed. And I think that's really important to remember because this is something that's going to come up in the further reports when we look at other case studies in state capture, is that the auditors, the lawyers and the bankers, they all could have stopped this earlier and they fundamentally failed to. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a first big hit if I can then move uh, forward just to, to, to speak to a miss uh, on this part of the report, is it, and it's about exactly the same thing, is that having made such strong findings against the conduct of the auditors, the Zonda Commission doesn't then follow that up with a sufficiently strong recommendation. And what we don't see is we don't see a call for effect or consequences against PwC. Um, and I think that that's a great shame because if it is true that they are partly responsible for allowing SAA to get into that state, costing us a huge, the states and the public, a huge amount of money in the process. That's something that should um, face real consequences. 
Then just one more um, hit that I wanted to, to raise here, because it was something that I was very excited by when I saw the report. And that's that the, the commission has recommended that law enforcement and the MPA investigate and, and possibly prosecute Nedbank and two Nedbank employees for their role in a very suspicious financial transaction and, and interest rate swap with airport company South Africa, which was facilitated by Gupta-linked company Regiments Capital. Um, and without getting into the weeds, the way these interest rate swaps worked is that the entity, in this case AXA, was being given generally a, an above, a, a very high fixed interest rate, and regiments and Nedbank were extracting very lucrative fees um, from those setups. Um, what the commission has found is that Nedbank did, e did not even uh, take the time to check whether airports company South Africa had authorized the deal, and they went ahead with it anyway. Um, the reason I raise this as a hit is that I, I think it's something we need to look out uh, for in the in the future reports, because this is exactly what regiments and Nedbank did with Transnet, what they did with the Transnet Pension Fund and the city of Johannesburg, a range of other state actors. And if there's a call for investigation and prosecution there, there may well be um, a call for that um, elsewhere. And and so I think that's something also to look out for um, in 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 the future. Then just to, to speak to a couple of other things that I think um, are, are kind of missing from the analysis when it comes to South African Airways. And, you know, I, I don't want to repeat what people have said, but I have to say again, the fact that the public cost of South African Airways down, downfall is, is nowhere to be found in the report. Now, SAA, absolutely, it's not a state-owned enterprise like some others that provides an absolutely essential service. Um, and where there's, there's a more obvious link to the cost. But the fact remains that the South African state has bailed out SAA to the tune of around 60 billion rand over the last decade while this took place. And that money has been given in the context of budgets where the state has been cutting essential spending from social services. And so that is a tangible harm. And what we don't see again in the report is we don't see the commission coming out strongly and saying, Dudumieni, Yake Quinana, uh, PwC and others that were involved, you're responsible for that. And there has to be some kind of redress and restitution that addresses not just the profits from the crime, but the actual social harm uh, that was implemented, which is, as we've said in many different forums, often um, much larger, uh, much larger than that. And then a final miss, and I've, I've touched on this before, is that one of the unfortunate consequences of having findings split between three reports is that some of the systemic issues are not addressed. And so, for example, here we see the role of PwC at SAA, but in future reports, we may well need to deal with the role of Deloitte at ESCOM, the role of KPMG in a range of places, Estina and others. And what that really, I think, is begging for is, is really an analysis of the systemic problems within the big four audit firms and questioning whether and how they should be allowed to contract with the state and, again, what kind of sanctions uh, they should face. And, th and then finally, uh, just before I, I throw it back to you, just in terms of the, the opportunities that I see coming from this part of the report, I think what is very helpful is the kind of unambiguous recommendations for prosecutions of a number of actors. Uh, and I think the opportunity this provides is it really provides an agenda for action for law enforcement 
and the prosecuting authority. And it becomes, it, it's something that the public, civil society and others can anchor in when we make demands on the prosecuting authority to act and move forward. And I think that's going to be, a, a, I mean, it already is a primary site of struggle to get these um, moving forward. Another opportunity I see is, is in the recommendation of the commission to strengthen the Auditor General uh, and to ensure that the Auditor General's office is taking greater responsibility for public audit. You know, in this instance, PwC have really shown either an unwillingness or an inability to audit a public entity and what that means in terms of its requirements in terms of public procurement law and the PFMA. And if they and other big four firms can't do that, but are going to continue to hoover up lucrative fees, we would be much better served by strengthening the Auditor General and, and calling on them to be able to, to do this work. And then I think finally, just to say that the opportunity, the strength of the commission in really raising these issues of the professionals, Yake Quinana as a chartered accountant, PwC as the auditors, is that it provides us, I think, an impetus to demand greater accountability in those sectors. So the fact that the commission demands that Saika investigate Quinana and consider whether she's a fit and proper person, I think is an absolutely uh, important mm -hmm. starting point. And also that uh, the Commission has started to think about amendments to the Companies Act, for example, to allow uh, a longer period of time to ask, uh, to apply to have directors declared delinquent. I think that's another great strength. It's something that would allow for greater corporate accountability and it would ensure that directors face the consequences for, for failing in their fiduciary duties. So, for all of the, the misses and I think the missed opportunities in the report, I, I do think that in terms of SAA, it gives us a lot to work with. Um, and I think the findings are clear and unambiguous. And, and hopefully the prosecuting authority can move quite quickly in a lot of the cases uh, that are not particularly complex. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Um, you know, I think your your point around uh, recommendations are made and the, the need for action. It's not only about the prosecuting authority. Uh, I think the South African Institute of Chartered Accountants, SICA, as you point out, their recommendations for it to act. And I think we give them credit after years, frankly, of inaction and sitting on their hands on issues. We saw Freeman Nomvalo and his colleagues uh, issue a statement, if I'm right, tomorrow saying that they are starting some of the processes as recommended by the by the Zondo Commission. But of course, not all these industry bodies are going to be moving very quickly. I mean, if we take the example, you know, you mentioned the role of Nedbank that stands out so very clearly. I think it's it's a it's it's a really important role play in the state capture space. And uh, and when we think about the fact that Mike Brown, uh, Mike, they not not all Mike's are good. Uh, not that I'm suggesting Mike Brown is bad if he's listening, but certainly he is the the chairperson, uh, uh, or at least the CEO of, of Nedbank, and he has been sitting on the, the, the directorship of Business Leadership South Africa. So basically the big industry body for all South Africa's big corporations, they're supposed to provide uh, steering in terms of governance. Uh, we see uh, Mike Brown sitting there in a leadership position, but very clearly the company that he has been leading since 2010 is deeply implicated in state capture. I think the question is going to be Business Leadership South Africa, how are you planning to respond to the issue of state capture. And certainly your record isn't a great one. Just last year, we saw Business Leadership South Africa uh, lift, uh, lift the suspension of a consulting company Bain and Bain uh, so central to state capture and, uh, and the, 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 the destruction at SARS. Um, I think in September last year, it, it lifted uh, the suspension of Bain and Bain is a full member 
uh, and no doubt prescribes to the code of ethics and conducts of business leadership South Africa. So I think these business bodies are going to need to come to the party if the public is going to continue to have faith in their willingness to act in the public's interest. But maybe that's a good point, Zen, um, to turn to you. And let's talk a little bit about South African revenue services. Um, again, it's not only about Bain, it's about Tom Moyane, and it's about all of us in terms of the, the fiscus's ability uh, to collect the money that's needed to spend on service delivery and on the effectively the redistribution of wealth in a particular way in South Africa through social services. So, so um, Zen, what for you are stand out as some of those, those hits, misses and opportunities? Yeah. Uh, th- thank you, Hemi um, and, and uh, Mamelo for convening us here. I think um, I'm extremely mindful of time, so I'll try to be as, as succinct as possible. But um, I think one of the main things, uh, Hemi, following from what you've raised and, and what from Raisa and Mike have raised, um, with regards to Bain, it's the Zondo Commission, I, I was surprised with the Zondo Commission including SARS as a third volume of the first part of their report. I wasn't aware that they were going to do that, but um, I think um, they did well um, as the commission to to bring that to the forefront. Um, um, I think it was easy for the commission to just bring SARS and Bain to the forefront without contextualizing why they did so, but I think one of my hits and that I'd like to mention is that uh, the the Zondo Commission and the Acting Chief Justice didn't do that um, without placing it into context. Um, and I think that's that's one of the major hits is that the report brings it into the first part of 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 what the commission tables uh, before the presidency, but it does that um, a by um, acknowledging the fact that this was not SARS was not in the original terms of reference of the commission, of the Zonda Commission, um, and I think by doing that, it places SARS in the discussion thereof, um, in in the broader context of the fact that um, we acknowledge that this was not necessarily part of what was earmarked in the beginning when uh, this commission was established as something that was something that we needed to investigate, but. Um, I think it, it it kind of shows and illuminates the the the, the moving, um, not the moving target per se, but the the changing context of what the commission found itself in. You know, the terms of reference earmarked a very a rigid and important um, terms of reference, but what the commission did, I think, in this first volume, by by acknowledging the fact that um, this part of the report was not in the terms of reference was that this is important it was not in the terms of reference but we need to talk about SARS because this is how the country um, acknowledges and or gains um, revenue to deal with all the other issues that we need the country to deal with um, and I think that was a hit in 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 large part for for the commission. I think another hit for the commission was to to really point out that there was a commission before it in terms of dealing with SARS, and um, in particular, it then highlights the fact that um, there was capture at SARS, but that uh, the Zondo Commission is not the first commission to be talking about this the capture and the corruption that rendered SARS which was an internationally recognized um, 
state institution um, as um, amongst the, the the best in the world, um, as as a as as a state institution that got crippled by state capture and corruption, and I think one of the major findings that the the Zonda Commission makes is that um, SARS ultimately was not necessarily an SOE, but it was a state and a public institution that was um, gutted by. Um, what the Zonda Commission calls in this report a capture of the state institution. And that is a major finding. And 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 I think um, that's the, the second of the hits um, that I would, I would like um, for us to, to talk about and to put forward is that um, it was not necessarily a, we are replicating what the Nugent Commission had done prior to the Zonda Commission, but as the Zondo Commission and the State Capture Inquiry, we recognized that there was a commission that dealt with this particular issue um, um, in particular, and that was its its mandate. Um, but as the Zondo Commission, we acknowledge that, but we move forward from that by recognizing what the um, Nugent Commission and the SARS Commission was not able to do. And this is where we come in. And I think that was a major hit because we are a country that's known for its commissions. And that can be a good and a bad thing. And I think, um, you know, in recognizing the, the, the Nugent Commission and the um, which was ultimately, which can be called, and this is sometimes called the SARS Commission, it's it was it was a big move and um, a hit, what I would say, in terms of the Zonda Commission to say this was important. Um, and we don't want to be recognized as a first commission, um, as a commission that's first um, digging into some of this work, but we want to say that this work has been done. We're not repeating it, but we are saying that we acknowledge the work of the, the commission that have come before us, and this is where we stand um, in parallel to that. Um, and, and so I think that was a major hit. I think one of the major, the next uh, major things with regards to this is that um, the Zonda Commission really highlighted the role of the private sector in this particular um, And that is that of Bain. Um, Bain. Sorry, Zane, can you unmute yourself? Sorry, hello? Can you unmute yourself? There we go. Oh no, I haven't been talking this whole time. Okay, sorry. Um, yes, I, I'm not sure where to pick up. So Zen, so Zen, I think so. Thanks, Zen. Uh, sorry, I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on, but it was a it was a good COVID fail of muting and unmuting. But I think you'd been speaking a little bit about the the role of Bain, and so we just wanted to. I think you're focusing on the importance of the inclusion of Bain and what that really means before. Um, yeah. yeah. Before okay. we Thank you so much, Henny. Thank you, Mamelo. Um, uh, thank you for, for, for bringing me back to the point. I wasn't sure where I was muted. But um, I think one of the main hits um, be, before moving, moving to the misses is, is yes, the inclusion of Bain. Um, and, and really, this is one of the parts um, where I think the Zonda Commission was able to really bring forth the, 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 the role of the private sector. I think, as colleagues have mentioned, there is no state capture without private sector enablers. It's not possible to be moving money without banks. It's not possible to be having um, stamp offs that enable state capture without the consulting firms and the auditing firms. And I think that is the main thrust that we bring forward 
I think in in terms of really highlighting that the fact that the buck stops with certain private sector enablers uh, and individuals, but enablers that are companies and corporations that really have the power to say the buck stops with us. Um, this is not where. Um, the 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 um, wasted capital and corruption uh, goes beyond us, and um, what we I think as Open Secrets tries to highlight is that the fact that private banks, private corporations, auditing firms, and consulting firms, they are the reason and they are the enablers that have made all of this possible, and it's not necessarily a side note to what capture and state capture have been, but it is the key turn organizations and private corporations that have enabled, that have unlocked the door. And I think um, in one instant, that is a major hit with with, with this discussion on SARS um, and the focus on Bain and the consulting firm um, is that, you know, it wasn't just Tom Muyane who was the um earmarked individual and commissioner of SARS at the time, which the Zonda Commission report in this instant names, and or the Zuma presidency, which the commission names, but it was also a private sector consulting entity, which was Bain and has been named as such by the commission, that enabled um, the, 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 the public entity, which is, you know, who has the the duty of the state um, to do what uh, we needed to do to collect the revenue needs to collect to provide the most basic um, requirements for those of us in the country that need it the most. And 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 I think that's a major hit. I think one of the misses is that um, the the report goes into to to um, it presents a lot of great um um, advancements into where the failings have been in terms of Bain, Tomiana and the Zuma presidency um, in, in engaging in nefarious engagements that enabled capture. But it 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 only has four recommendations, um, a, two to do with Bain, one to do with Tomiana and one to do with SARS as a revenue service at the time, um, that... I think that this was a missed opportunity um, insofar as that the fact that SARS is our revenue services um, body as a public, as, as a state to really say, you know, we have all of this evidence, we have all of these findings, our recommendations could be um, stronger to say, you know, this is what we put forward as a commission. This is what I put forward as an acting um, Chief Justice to say um, these are the the avenues of action that need to be taken with regards to to SARS um, and with the nefarious actions of Bain Tomuyane and and um, various other middlemen and the presidency at the time to um, undermine SARS and 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 to hollow the state institution out that was internationally recognised um, and 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 so yeah. Um, I think the opportunities for growth, uh, the opportunities for justice in this area are ultimately to, um, for civil society to um, rally and collaborate around some of the areas in which um, we can push um, the, the the commission to to make stronger recommendations. Um,
because the recommendations, um, I think, as colleagues have previously said, are what the presidency is is held um, uh, to 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 implement. And I think as 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 we move forward, um, that's one of the areas where we can push forward on. Zen, thanks very much. Um, I think you know. The, the the point you make is that um, that not only do we need to see some action, but I think there are some some clear recommendations as you point out, and those include the idea of reviewing all the contracts that uh, Bain is getting from other government departments. And there's no uh, there's no doubt that that's the reason that Bain is squealing right now. Uh, and I think that Bain employees must be feeling very uncomfortable in South Africa, knowing what their their company has been involved in uh, here in terms of um, of of state capture. I think there's probably a good reason for their to be an argument that a company like Bain should be placed in the register of tender defaulters and not allowed to be do, to do any business with government uh, for for many years to come, and I think that's the kind of thing. Plus, jailing the CEOs, the former CEO is sitting pretty, from what I understand, uh, South African CEO is sitting pretty in Italy. We've written about him in in, in one of our unaccountable pieces, uh, finding ways to to bring them back here to face uh, to face justice in South Africa. And maybe before we turn to um, Khadija Sharif, maybe just one other quick point is, you know, as just a, a, a little juicy nugget from us at Open Secrets. Um, for folks who know, we've been following the apartheid banks for sometimes banks. We believe the NPA must be, hold to account. We've given a docket to the NPA. And an extraordinary thing that happened was um, when we read the, the report from Judge Zondo, we see that one of the pe people, a senior Hawks official, who held Flock Symington uh, hostage. You might recall there was that SARS official that was held hostage in a somewhat kind of comical, tragic, tragic situation by Hawks officials who, who were demanding um, uh, documents from them and, of course, were doing so, uh, acting outside of the rule of law when they were doing so. Well, the same Brigadier Klaba, um, who is the person implicated in the report, is the person who the Hawks have asked to investigate apartheid-era economic crimes. He's been, he's been nominated. And I think you can't build... Uh, you can only build a, a crooked house with a crooked individual, and I think uh, I fear that this is another example of precisely that. So, uh, these are the you know the, the the networks remain, and these a lot of these folks remain in the system, just as a company like Bain does. Uh, Khadija, let's turn to you. Um, you've uh, and again, just reminded the folks, Khadija's joined, Sharif has joined Open Secrets as um, as an associate senior investigator in the first of this month. You've been working in the organized crime and uh, um, corruption reporting project OCCRP for a number of years investigating um, state capture yourself and, and produced numerous reports about this. How do you look at the, the issue of SARS? Do you think the, the, the report has gone enough particularly to deal, and I'm going to go back to that, to the with, with the role of, of the enablers? Khadija, I'm not sure if you can hear us. Okay, I think we may have a problem connecting with Khadija right now. Um, so we're going to come back to Khadija to talk uh, through this and a couple of other issues. Um, Mamelo, what do you reckon? Maybe it's time for us to open up to um, uh, a couple of speakers. And we folks, we're already an hour in. I know we said we wanted to be an hour and 15 minutes. We're going to run a couple of minutes over, no doubt. Uh, Mamelo, can I ask you to identify some speakers for us? And we're going to name you by your Twitter handle, if that's okay. I think there was uh, Jack at Jack Ma was the first speaker I I had. Jack Ma, over to you. I think Jack is start, is struggling to join. He was connecting. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, maybe we can move on to Rax uh, or Rax. 
Um, you have your hand up. Good evening, everyone. Hi, good evening. Yes, I think according to me, uh, state capture, I think you are moving in, in a, a right direction. Remember, those people that they find out in the Kukuja, uh, they always come with a theory, like Mzwana Namanye. You always come with a theory to, you know, to make people to, to be, uh, you know, confused, you know. At, according to me, I hope uh, what the recommendation that they, they uh, Zondo, they said they have to act. If they can act upon those people, now, now it will be a lesson in future. Because with how many state capture, I mean, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, inquiries that we have, nothing ever ever anything happened to anyone. If this one, they can make example so that you know recommendation. Every everyone they have to go to jail, and the thing that they have to do, they have to make sure that they clean these people. Because if, like, now they go to jail for their self five years, you know, automatically they self five years. Within two and a half, back, they, are, they are back to the community. But the man that they loot from the state, they're still going to enjoy, you know, that luxury life. I think what they have to do now, they have to include other uh, agents of the, the law so that, you know, they take everything, clean those people to start from the ground so that, they, they, you know, government, they mean a business. But I think that's like a problem now. This uh, RET, they're the one that they disagree everything that they state captured. They said, okay, this is wrong, whatever, I understand. The things that we listen to, the whole thing we saw, you know, the problem that Gupta, you know, they were having a power over government. I wish and I pray those people, they have to be brought back to the country so, so that they can be able to answer everything that, you know, that they cost to our country. I thank you through you, Speaker. Great. Many thanks for your contribution and a strong call for accountability and action there. And I think we, we at least from Open Secrets, agree that we got to see, we've, you know, this is not about creating lists of people that, uh, that only need to be prosecuted. It's about changing the system, and that's going to take a, a lot of hard graft. Mamelo, who have we got next on the line? Um, Topo? Uh, good, good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes, talk loud and clear. Go for it. Oh yes, um, uh, yeah. Uh, for me, okay, uh, yeah. The, you know the state capture. You know the report from the Zondo Commission. It hits home because I uh, I work in the Department of Justice, and uh, I I work in the in the in the IT unit. And um, in terms of the hits, um, it's touching all the writers in terms of, for example, the procurement transactions you know and also mention even the um, like, um you know private corporations the relationship you know being enablers and all that and then um you guys also touched further that they could have gone further now in, in putting all of the enablers you know uh, in the private sector accountable you know for all of those things taking place the banks and all uh, and and all that so and now in terms of okay Okay, yeah, it's a miss, but I think in a way, uh, because when you talk about the processes within government, and for example, what I've seen, which is a, a huge problem in state institutions and departments as well, is that, for example, people um, do, do things out of instinct, you know, and they don't really follow the actual pro processes in the legislations that uh, run this, uh, that are supposed to run these institutions, 
you know and and there's a lot of things that you know you know that get passed by you know there's a lot of things that small details which at the end when they get audited now these things become huge like you for example um when they do procurement né, and you find for example this money readily available and they pay this huge some uh, amount of money you know to the uh, service provider and all that and but then you ask them guys are you going according to the standards in the market guys have we done proper research about this product does the does the department does the state institution need this product and to what extent are we getting value for money these are the questions with um which we we ask around you know we're asking the directors the assistant directors you know you know and we're asking them these questions you know you guys you you've made this uh, this huge um uh, 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 tender deal and now and then we we ask you for example you're paying a lot of money for this and and now i think this is where for example you'll get where um you're not sure if you're getting value for money you know because they don't really do this research you know whether the the department or state institution actually needs this they just leave it all to the service provider to just you know get the work done they they don't check like you know it's it's something which it's a bit disturbing because you you ask for example a director and then they don't actually know what they're really purchasing they're just happy to just pay money for a service so and so these are the things which i think it they must be addressed in the recommendations where we need to see what are actually paying for in our state institutions and i think this uh, must be also be brought up in the public you know mustn't just get information a tender just went out and we paid and then all of a sudden in thomas time we don't really see progress we must actually see what we're actually paying for and if there can be some recommendations regarding that you know uh, even from the president you know whether from parliament so that we can actually keep track of what we're paying for thank you very much Yeah talk thanks very much and uh and I think this isn't the last word there obviously is two other parts to the report coming out and I'm hoping if anyone from the Zondo commission who's busy drafting tonight is listening to this uh talk has given some good advice to you um uh Mamelo who else uh, who else have we got lined up should we take uh, another another great over to you thanks Mamelo thank thank you very much and uh, good evening uh thanks for uh, Hi there thanks for a great session um i think from my perspective while well, first acknowledging that it's quite a depressing read but a necessary one i suppose from a heat perspective for me i think um i think the the immediate release of the report itself is must be uploaded and i think it enhances transparency so so even before i go into the report itself i think the immediate release is it's a hit the detail within the report um it's also quite a hit um i'm still stuck uh somewhere on page 300 in terms of the first report um uh, even though i have gone to the to the to the recommendations just to get a sense of where it goes uh so i think that's a hit i think from a mis perspective um i i wonder if it you know the commission could have been a bit more uh declarative in terms of some of the consequences but i suppose you know i'm not a lawyer i'm sure there are legal considerations i think from an opportunity perspective for me which is where i just want to spend maybe a few seconds on it's i think we have an opportunity i suppose in terms of um how 
board members of SOEs are appointed and the kind of oversight that exists um, and how effective that oversight is. It's quite shocking. Uh, the airline industry, for example, I mean, it's one of the most competitive industries globally, a high cost um, industry, uh, very difficult to run, uh, very few profitable airlines in the world. And if you look at, uh, you know, the kind of chairperson that was uh, ultimately appointed, it, it, it says to me, you know, do we have the right checks and balances to ensure that those kinds of roles are actually given uh, to people with the right experience, uh, the right exposure, and the right skills. The, 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 the report itself does make, make a comment on that. Um, but also what is quite shocking as well is, is that even after the board, I think eight members of the board resigned in mass in terms of, in, in protest, um, you know, the chairperson still continued for an even longer period. And and if you look at that and, and you look at what might have happened in other SOEs, I think that the, the template is, is pretty similar in a way. And I think for me, the opportunity is for us to, as a country, review and understand whether our oversight uh, processes are effective. Clearly, they are not. I think... Um, the appointments of not only board chairs, sorry, board, board members, but also um, us demanding more, even when it comes to people that occupy such positions of chairpersons. I think you you would have had to chair a number of boards, uh, probably in the same kind of industry. Or you know, it, it's shocking what we allowed or what was allowed to happen. So one hopes that as a result of this, maybe there'll be a little bit more scrutiny. I think we're all aware of the losses uh, to the country as a result of SAA uh, collapse. But hopefully out of this, then from civil society, from uh, legislators, from private sector, there is a lot more energy around how SOE boards are actually appointed and how chairpersons are held accountable uh, for that. I think for me, for now, that is the biggest opportunity, at least as it relates to the SAA debacle and maybe on, on SOEs that I see coming out of the report. Thank you very much. Super, thanks. Thanks very much for that, Bohani. And uh, yeah, um, some, some very helpful comments. And I think you're right. It's, it's partly about the appointment of uh, of boards and and I think you know we we've seen it again with the public investment corporation and the in the potential interference of politicians in this Ramaphosa administration I think there is an appetite for politicians to get overly involved in the appointment of these boards and that has led us into all kind of trouble in the past so it's a really helpful reminder um let's take one more one more uh, one just one more speaker and then we're going to return to Khadija Sharif um, Mamelo will, will you guide us please um, I hope I'm saying this correctly. Uh, Sachin, uh, you have a South African buff on your profile picture. Yeah, it's Sachin, but it's cool. Um, I was just Sachin. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, I was going to agree with everybody, and mainly it's shocking how we have these institutions in place. You know, Chapter Nine institutions. We have the Auditor General. We have like a lot of protections to prevent this from happening. But it seems like there was a lot of lack or, or apathy perhaps and it seems like it's slowly going away but it's 
I mean, we have to, accountability seems to be the main trend. And I don't know how it ended up this way. Like, did people just give up and they thought, no, the situation is solved now or what? But it's very interesting. I think we need to hold a lot of people accountable, to be honest, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Hey. So, so Sachin, thanks very much. Um, yeah, it's about non-repetition, I guess, as, they, as the argument goes, and that's how one tackles impunity. But, but I guess this begs an important question when you say, how did this happen? Um, you know, we've had a lot of kind of political scientists and pseudo-political scientists trying to explain to us what state capture means. Somebody's DM'd me to say, well, it's all fine and good that you're doing this, but explain what you mean by state capture. Khadija Sharif, um, uh, I introduced you earlier, and I've said again, um, you've joined Open Secrets recently as a as a um, as, uh, as an associate senior investigator. You've worked for many years in tackling issues, investigating issues of, of state capture. Um, I, I'm not asking for a scientific explain, explanation of state capture, but I mean, when you sit back and look at this, do you think that um, that the report explains to us actually what state capture means, um, and 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 how to to um, to in a way disable it to stop it? Uh, I mean, in the, and that's a pretty broad question, but I, I know yeah. you focus a lot on the role of the private actors and and the the system itself. So, so give us your thoughts, yeah. please. I think state capture as a phrase, uh, it actually goes back to the 1970s. It's kind of an excuse and a catch-all for a number of systemic problems that become easier to marginalize or to overlook. Uh, so just some context, you know, in most Southern African countries, for example, there's a dominant political party that also performs de facto as the government. And in all of these countries, the role of politically connected people to serve as door openers to business deals, particularly for foreign companies, multinationals, and I mean companies especially like Bain and McKinsey, because they create costs where none actually should exist. For example, in Transnet, the Treasury unit was very strong. It was one of the best on the continent. But these guys come in and they create costs so that they get a deal using politically connected door openers. So in the United States, this would be a violation of the FCPA, but not in South Africa, Namibia, Mozambique, where corruption is institutionalized from the outset and utilizes a platform of equity that ironically creates inequity. So as long as corruption is institutionalized, the idea or the framing as a political economy catch-all of state capture is really invalid. You need to go into how the system is designed, how these doors are opened, and where the problem actually comes from, from a diagnostic place, from a place of accurate definition, and from the fault line. So I don't really like the term state capture. I think it's very fashionable, and I don't think it's uh, critical enough going into the diagnosis of what creates the problem. So, so tell us, t tell us what it's missing, though, in terms of the, that definition, uh, Khadija. Um, um, I mean, wh what do you think in terms of the diagnosis of the problem is missing from the notion of state capture? I think that as long as there's a dominant political party where politically connected people are allowed to perform as part of BEE deals or in some other corporate form, like the idea of cash in a suitcase is no longer a valid issue. Now they are shareholders. Now they are fixers, door openers, uh, minority partners. That's exactly what Salim Isa was on the, the, uh, the rail deal. So they get a kickback structured as a payment for a professional service that's provided. 
And it's something that happens all over uh, Southern Africa, which then I think takes us really into why whistleblowers were so integral in terms of facilitating a situation of the... Uh, Khadija, I think we've just lost you. You still there? I think Khadija was just going to speak to us about the role of whistleblowers, and Khadija's obviously worked uh, extensively. Something that we want to reflect on in this session is the, is the role of whistleblowers. But um, while Khadija reconnects to talk about whistleblowers, um, let's let's then turn to other requests for inputs from the floor and see who else would like to speak. Uh, Mamelo. Yeah, I think Ray was next. Great, Ray, over to you. Hi, everyone. Uh, good evening. Uh, a really good uh, discussion. Um, I just wanted to reflect on uh, the SARS component of um, the Zonda Commission report. Uh, I think everybody, a lot of people say that, uh, you know, the hard work now starts um, with the Zonda Commission and the recommendations and implementation of those recommendations. The hard work now begins in implementing some of the, those recommendations. But for me, um, a, a misses or a disappointment um, in the Zondo uh, report and its recommendations is that um, its re recommendations on SARS has reminded me how much work there still needs to be done in terms of implementing the Nugent Inquiry uh, recommendations. Uh, for example, and I'm basing this solely of my memory because I, I did report uh, a lot on mm. the Nugent Inquiry. Um, but back in 2018, if memory serves, and that's when the Nugent Inquiry completed its work, uh, the Nugent, Nugent uh, Inquiry uh, recommended that the National Director of Public Prosecutions uh, institute criminal proceedings uh, in connection with uh, the awarding of a SARS contract to Bain. Uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any um, work uh, from the NDPPP uh, in, in investigating Bain. So since 2018, Bain has, has been allowed to continue its work, uh, receiving contracts, in fact, uh, in the public uh, and private sector. So for me, uh, the Zondo, uh, you know, the Zondo uh, part about Bain and SARS has reminded me how much work uh, there still needs to be done regarding the implementation of uh, the Nugent Inquiry um, recommendations. And I guess that's an indicator of how much work there will still be uh, needed in implementing uh, the Zondo Commission uh, recommendations. And the last point is, uh, you know, I speak to Bain a lot through my work at the Daily Maverick. I report on Bain and its uh, role in the State Capture Project. And astonishingly, Bain still stands by its work at SARS. Uh, Bain still pleads innocence and Bain still doesn't see uh, anything wrong in its work to restructure SARS. So I, I just don't know how, you know, Ben can be held accountable when it hasn't even reflected on the wrongdoing it has done at SARS. So uh, that's my contribution this evening. Ray, great. Thanks so much. And, and such an important insight as well. I mean, 
I guess it's such a reminder um, that there's this kind of dissonance for people who are often implicated in crimes. And we've seen that. I mean, we see that in our own family members when with people who, who've done something really egregious and they uh, frankly just pr- you know, pretend that, that that doesn't happen, whether you are uh, whether you are Jimmy Manu or Bain, it seems to be a, a particular kind of dissonance that people um, who you know who have have brought so much damage on a on a country are, are, are seem to have a similar characteristic there. Um, let, let's let's move on to uh, to other contributors, Mamelo. I think Sibo, you are next. Great, Sibo, go for it. Uh, thanks, thanks, uh, Henny and Mamelo and everyone on the platform. I, I. I think the hit for me, although I haven't got so far in reading the report, um, everything looks... I, I, I think the hit will be the work that investigative journalists have done uh, during the, 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 the period that the Zondo Commission was looking at. Uh, everything seemed like... It felt like I'm reading the report for the second time. I think it's through the work of the journalists. So those were the hits. But the misses, a a number of conclusions are made around former President Jacob Zuma. I don't know how it can be taken to a point where he accounts for what he did. Not necessarily being prosecuted, but at least he must give... I think we we need a lot of answers because... The, the approach that was adopted at the Zondo Commission, where people just did not want to link President Zuma to what he did or what the report is concluding he did. And I, I suspect even if we go to a stage of prosecutions, uh, people will still refuse to link him to all those things that they were doing on his behalf and on, the behalf, on behalf of his friends. Yeah, Sibo, thanks. Thanks very much. I think um, uh, doesn't the, I, I'm not sure if I got the, the wording right. Doesn't the report somewhere talk about uh, about former President uh, Zuma running away from or absconding from the commission? I think they had a, a, a an, an even less gracious way of, of describing it. Uh, and certainly he was given his opportunities, but didn't uh, again want to take those. Um, um, but I guess we'll hear more about that in the in the next uh, parts of the report that come out. Let's take a let's take another two um, speakers, and then I'm going to suggest we go back to some of our Open Secrets colleagues just to give us a, a quick wrap up um, um, as we approach the next half. And you know the the eight thirty mark. I think we'd like to try and wrap up by then. So, Mamelo, can we can can we through you just identify another two folks? Uh, Jack Ma. He'd asked earlier, and then um, Jabu Sitole will be after that. Great. Jack, over to you. Hey, guys. Uh, May I just have a question? Why you people are so angry that uh, black people were given a chance to to participate in economy uh, during Zuma years? Just uh, just want to clarify why you people are so angry. Hey Jack, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. I don't think um, uh, there's no. I think there's no anger about who gets to participate. I think we've been very clear that some of the biggest uh, scoundrels we're focusing on are the big old fat uh, and lazy corporations, uh, and many of them have headquarters in the United States and Europe and elsewhere. So uh, it's a whole mixed bag of people and individuals who came to feast during state capture. I reckon. Um, Mamelo, um, uh, our last speaker. 
from the from the floor. Uh, Jabu is next. Uh, over to you, Jabu. Hi guys. Um, I'm, I'm thanks for the opportunity. Um, mine is actually with regards to the enablers. So, state capture cannot happen if there's no a corruptor. That's your big corporations. That's your banks. That's your audit firms. That's your um, you know, inter- multinational uh, uh, companies. My my thing about this whole thing is that most of these organizations or most of the CEOs of these Bains or these KPMGs are not being questioned, um, um, are not being interrogated as to what is their take on the whole thing. Um, just yesterday, I think Ethel um, gave us a list of uh, CEOs who still endorsed um, uh, Bain to say, journalists who are brave or who wants to know um, what is the take on um, these corporations by the CEOs, interview these people, find out what is their standing on this multinational company that actually enabled looting, you know. So I'm, I'm just saying, journalists here, have you tried maybe to interview the CEOs and find out what they are stand on this thing. Thanks. Great. Great job. Well, thanks very much. I know that uh, uh, that Ray Malaka and other colleagues are on here certainly have tried, but I think, uh, you know, we that's a good call out to say we want to hear more um, from some of these individuals in the days ahead that we ask their, their, um, their CEOs and others their views as to what's happening here. And, you know, and ultimately I think we need to keep on asking the hard questions from the NPA uh, and others as to when are they going to to prosecute. I think we've seen uh, the points made by by some colleagues, and, and Teresa was talking about this earlier, the challenges with this notion of deferred prosecutions. We don't want these folks necessarily to get off scot-free. In fact, nobody who's been complicit in these crimes should get off as uh, scot-free. Ultimately, the intention, I think, in terms of state capture was to repurpose the state for their own interest, to take control of it. Uh, and I think, lest we forget that, that really means that you completely subvert democracy and those uh, pretty s- sinister deep state networks then ultimately have the potential to take control from the people. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest we we um, we turn back now to the panel. Um, and I think um, I know that Khadija, you're back online, so I'm going to see if we can try and connect with you again quite soon. Uh, um, but let's let's uh, let's just see if we can get Khadija online to talk a little bit about whistleblowers. Khadija, are you able to to turn on your mic? I know you've had some Etiquini, uh internet problems there. How's it looking? Um, we're still struggling to get Khadija to accept a speaker invite, but um, I've okay. invited her to speak. She'll be on shortly. Okay, great. Thanks, Pamelo. Well, uh, Khadija, press that button. We want to hear from you. But let, let's let's turn to to um, to the rest of the, the uh, Open Secrets team who gave some of the initial inputs. And Raisa, kicking off with you, um, I know you wanted to to raise a couple of points in response to issues that were raised around uh, public procurement, in in particular, maybe other points. So, a quick wrap up from you, and then um, uh, Mike Zen and Raisa will pass on to you from there. Uh, thanks so much, Henny. I think there was input from somebody called Toko earlier who really gave, I think, a really good analysis talking about incompetence um, within government agencies. 
And just to speak to that, um, you know, there's always been this issue of is it incompetence or is it corruption? Um, and actually what the Zonal Commission has recommended in terms of procurement is that there be a professional agency for procurement officers to set standards and qualifications so that these officers are appropriately qualified to do this role. And if I'm not mistaken, if I read correctly, it will also have some kind of monitoring function to ensure that if there is any sort of negligence in this role, um, there will be action taken against those officials. Um, so I think that's definitely an opportunity going forward in terms of procurement, and it's a much needed one to root out incompetence. Um, and then just a thank you to everybody for joining us tonight and for your contribution. Um, it's been really incredible. And yeah. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much, Raisa. And I think Tokwa, if I understood correctly, is also working within the public service. And we're reminded that there are many ordinary folks in public service and for that matter in the private sector who basically just want to do the right thing every day. Uh, the problem does seem to be very often with the bosses that we have allowed to run the place. And that's a reminder, I guess, to all of us in the private and public sector. Um, Mike, uh, um, from, from your side, any, any closing remarks? Any final points? Thanks, Annie. I, I think just two things that that came up that have really struck me that I that I wanted to raise in closing. The one was just to pick up on Ray's points about how uh, how Bain have steadfastly refused to accept responsibility for their role in what happened at SARS. And what I think is interesting is that it's a pattern of how the private sector actors um, have behaved. And what, uh, you know, what the Zonda Commission has noted in this first report, for example, with regards to PwC and South African Airways, is that when the Auditor General pointed out in 2017 that there'd been a host of irregularities, it was unambiguous. That was the moment for PwC to put their hands up and say, we've made a terrible error. And what the Commission has said is that it's a great shame that it's taken five years and a commission of inquiry for PwC to finally admit actually we didn't do our jobs. And it's the same with Nedbank. Nedbank have steadfastly held to their story that they've done nothing wrong. And the reason I raise it is that lots of the people who are supporting deferred prosecution agreements are saying that they'll work because corporations will self-report corruption that they find within their ranks. And I think that what state capture in South Africa shows us is that that is often a false hope, that those corporations will go to the nth degree and they will go and engage in corruption until the point where it, it is absolutely unavoidable but to accept responsibility. And even then, they will often, oftentimes try and deny it. So I, I think that's a huge red flag for DPAs in general. And then just the last thing, I think another contributor said, you know, the real question now is, is what prosecutions? And I think what's really encouraging about this part of the report is that it doesn't just encourage prosecutions of the really complicated grand corruption state capture crimes, which are absolutely essential. But Zondo and the commission have said, you also need to prosecute the other, the other crimes. Dudu Miani needs to be prosecuted for revealing uh, the identity of a protected witness, likely deliberately during the commission. The commission, for example, has recommended that uh, Pumeza Nancy, the uh, former chief financial officer of South African Airways, should be prosecuted for failing to report corruption that she should have been aware of. Those types of narrow, simple prosecutions, uh, there are likely hundreds of them across the public and private sector of people implicated in state capture. And they should not be hugely complicated for the, the, for the prosecuting authority and law enforcement to put together. And I think that that's 
an area of hope because once we start to see some accountability for even some of those slightly more simple crimes, if you want to put it that way, I think we can get a momentum up for accountability and, and start to really ensure that there are consequences uh, for all of those who are implicated in these in these crimes. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And, and a reminder, I think that the, the report talks to the, to the fact that the South Africa's two big pieces of legislation that's supposed to tackle this kind of egregious behavior of corruption more generally, the, the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act and the Public Financial Management Act have only seen one prosecution in uh, using those uh, both those pieces of legislation. And I think the prosecution in terms of the, the, uh, the corruption Corrupt Activities Act, PRECA, dates back to 2006 when Shabir Sheikh was prosecuted. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary and an indictment on the National Prosecuting Authority for missing the point here. And maybe, Mike, I just want to add on you know, your point that you've made around this deferred prosecutions agreement and others have spoken to. Um, uh, just a fun fact for everybody. It's really interesting to see how international consulting companies uh, were quite involved in pushing the idea of deferred prosecutions in the last two quarters of 2021, uh, rather, uh, just in the run-up to the Zonda Commission finishings report that this would be a, a kind of a golden solution to our problems. And I, I think we do worry about who exactly are paying their bills and in whose interest is that, the interest of the public or the interest of the corporations who might be paying those bills. But those are questions that I think uh, remain unanswered. Um, Zen, over to you. Do you have any, any final points just to wrap us up, please? Um, uh, nothing much. Thank you, Henny Mamela, for, for hosting us. I think Michael said most of what I was going to say. Um, but just to add on to, I think, some, some questions from the floor, from, from the likes of Jack and, and others like Ray, asking particularly about Bain um, and SARS. Um, I think um, what I'll, I would like to close on three points. There's no silver bullets. Um, and I think um, we should not look to the commission to give us silver bullets. Um, okay, um, to 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 kind of, there's no one hit wonder, no silver bullet to kind of um, uh, bring us out of, uh, yeah, the the mess that we find ourselves in and the reality that we find ourselves in. I think we have to continue to claw ourselves out of, unfortunately, the reality that we have been um, dug into. Um, I, I, that's not a hopeless comment, however. I think um, we have the agency. Um, and I think we we should we should we should remember that, um, and we should we should tap into that, and and remember that um, collaboration is is key to 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 um, uh, yeah to 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 getting the work done, um, both as civil society and as the public in general. Um, I'd like to say that, and and I think the second point is that um, we are not just um, you, we. We are not people where things get done to. We we have, um, we are uh, full of space and time and um, I want to say agency, but I think that wasn't the word I was looking for. But um, we we have, uh, yeah, the democratic right to 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 request and require and demand what is rightfully um, owed to us as a people of this country. Um, and I think, uh, I think tapping into that um, and, and drawing on that and collaboratively as a people of this country is the way that we, we, we can move forward um, um, following this and the two other uh, recommendations and reports that the commission has to table. Um, and I think uh, uh, 
sustain civil society organization, both with the public and, and organizations um, en masse, is the way that we can we can continue to push forward. And that's, that's what I have to say. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, Zen. And, and I think such a reminder that civil society better not give up. This is... Uh, We've just got our work mapped out for us now. This this part of the report and the others will no doubt give us uh, the kind of material that we all collectively need to be working on in in in, in the years ahead. Um, but but let, let, let's in, in just giving the final comment here to Khadija. Um, Khadija, hopefully, um, uh, internet guards are on our side now. Can you give us your sense, just reflecting particularly on the role of whistleblowers? We haven't spoken about it. Um, The the Zona Commission uh, report makes really strong recommendations, I think, around what could be done to uh, better protect whistleblowers and create incentives for whistleblowers who are so central to uncovering much of this mess that Zen just spoken of. Yeah, I I think um, whistleblowers need to be the last... uh, the last safeguard, not the first. And in this case, we've seen that they have been the first to come forward because country by country reporting, disclosure of beneficial owners, automatic information exchange, company accounts, trust disclosure, the whole system is designed to report to stakeholders um, in the most abstract way and to provide information to shareholders. But who said rich people are honest and integrous and will oversee themselves in the way that needs to be done? for the public. So to prevent corruption, you need to prevent opacity and make sure that systemically the right legislation is in place from the outset. And then we can look at whistleblower laws. Um, I, I, I think all of the speakers have been excellent, but I disagree that we have the space and time to continue slowly moving towards findings that may or may not result in prosecutions. There's an urgency, people are dying. We are one of the most unequal countries in the world. And what has happened should not have happened. Uh, If the people who are our custodians are afraid of us because technically they provide a service to citizens who vote them into power, they would not be exploiting the citizenry in this way. So while the report recommends a whistleblower regulator, which is excellent, and compensation for whistleblowers, which is very important, I think the head of ESCOM sent Bianca Goodson a letter to say thank you for the billion that you've recovered. But the letter didn't say we're going to give you a piece of that uh, because you've lost everything in life. Um, So the creation of the agency needs to be separate. Uh, The Platform for the Protection of Whistleblowers has sent through recommendations. And it says that, you know, it needs to be independent from the reporting agencies already created under the terms of the PDA. It needs to exclude national security issues because across the region and in South Africa, if something is considered a matter of national security, which everything corrupt or connected to high level people generally is, then it's kind of pushed to the side. So that needs to be removed. There needs to be very strict timetables created in terms of how people respond to whistleblowers because it's sensitive, it's delicate, it's risky and their lives are on the line. There needs to be amendments to the PDA, um, duty of responsiveness to update them on where things are. There needs to you know, be, be a way to address the lack of punitive sanctions against those who are harming whistleblowers. We know that Mosilo Motepo was being bankrupted at the time that she was disclosing to the public protector. And there was nothing in the PDA that protected her from this. The legal system in South Africa does not protect whistleblowers. So if PLAF had not provided pro bono support to many of them, they would not be able to afford the legal fees, which runs into millions of rand. So the legal system needs to change. Um, There needs to be a a, a clause that says whistleblowers do not incur liability of any kind where they make disclosures. Um, Their their, uh, names, you know, in terms of anonymity, that needs to be protected. 
the new agency needs to work with the director of priority crimes to ensure that there is some compensation for whistleblowers because at the end of the day, we've seen with BLSA that many of the people who are responsible are actually the founding CEOs or the board members. We know NetBank is there. Uh, and NetBank was not just involved in Transnet and so forth, but it was also the correspondent bank to Baroda, which the Guptas dominated. And when we had that discussion with NetBank, they said, well, hey, we just didn't know. But as the correspondent bank, which was the sole conduit for Baroda Bank in South Africa, and which was the primary means of moving money that was stolen from the public out of the country, NetBank had the fucking responsibility to do their job. Sorry for swearing. So at the end of the day, there is an urgency. We do need to act, and we need to apply a lot of pressure, aggressive and hostile pressure on the people responsible, because those living in the slums don't have next month and next year. Their cupboards are empty, they're dealing with barefoot politics, and they are extremely vulnerable to every cold that passes through the economy. I don't think that this is a situation that can continue for much longer. I'll stop there. Thank you. I'm sorry for swearing. Khadija, thanks, thanks very much. I think um, you know, you're right, and I think that's an important point to start wrapping up, is that very clearly this is about us being able to channel a lot of that frustration and anger that we have. This can't be a report that gives us a couple of technocratic responses uh, where we have a bunch of NGOs who work together with the Zonda Commission and the presidency to implement things, and we allow politicians to tick some boxes down the line. Um, we've got to remain uh, vigil and remain angry as a population about the, the inequity that results from from state capture, from looting, uh, and frankly, from greed, uh, which is uh, commonplace in, in much of ours and, and many other societies in the world. Uh, and, and I think that's, a, that's an important point to leave, it, to leave us tonight. Um, uh, and I think uh, we're going to continue these conversations. Um, we're going to continue the work in many ways as Open Secrets continue to follow us, be part of, it, of the conversation, uh, be active in the organizations you're working in, and join us again at the end of the month. I think the next part of the report will be released on the, the 28th and I think soon thereafter, Mamelo, we hope to uh, have everybody on joining us in, in another one of these spaces, if I'm correct. So so the last word over to you. Thanks, Mamelo. Yes, uh, I love that Henny's already organizing the next Twitter space because it's taken quite a while for me to convince the whole team to even host this space and I'm so glad that you all joined us. I think these spaces are so important. Um, to just having conversations amongst ourselves as citizens. Um, we don't like the big tech bros, but um, their technology does sometimes actually help in getting us closer together and actually having these very important conversations. And we'd like to continue to have those with you and reach out to us, you know, reach out to us on WhatsApp, reach out to us on Twitter, everywhere. Um, we are available. Um Send us some tips if you know what's going on. We like to open all the secrets. Um, and, you know, have a good evening. Uh, we're very glad to have had you here. And I think this is a very important kind of space, uh, to use the word, um, for actually um, furthering participatory democracy. And we'd like to see even government and um, everyone, and the private sector opening themselves up to having these kind of conversations in the open. Um, so thank you for joining us and see you next time, as Henny says, in 
uh, a few weeks at the end of the month when we have the next state capture report or even sooner, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I might convince some of our team members. Khadija is very excited, as you could hear. Um, so, yeah, have a good evening, everyone. That's just a terrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. <laughs>